0: Hey there this is dynamo mars and johnny wolfenstein from trick-or-treat radio and the deadites it's time to go to school because you are listening to the faculty of horror
1: And welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcast, podcasting from the hard halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subisati. And we're back for the month of February. And not only is this a very love-fueled month with Valentine's Day, which just passed, but there's also a big cultural thing going on right now, and that would be the Oscars. And those are a big award show about films and cultural prestige. So what better time to talk about Two horror films that deal a lot with cultural prestige, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula and Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That's right. And it's actually kind of
0: interesting that we're looking at these films around Oscar season because the filmmakers behind these films, Francis Ford Coppola, has won several Oscars, obviously. Kenneth Branagh, on the other hand, has been nominated for so many and hasn't won one. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. And I actually feel like that kind of speaks to what these films are all about in essence, like the best of intentions, high pedigree. Great players, some not-so-great players, but they just didn't quite
1: get it right. And I think that's to say that when they do get it right, it is so right, and there are so few filmic elements that could ever top what appears in these films, mainly Dracula, but we'll get into that later. But I think there's something quite special about the ambition behind these films. There's something very pure behind them, and we'll get into that quite a bit.
0: Now just to give a little bit of background another thing these two films share in common is that I saw them both in my high school English class. When I was in high school English we looked at both of these books, Bram Stoker's Dracula and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and holy shit, when you're a kid in high school and you're going to be watching fucking horror movies in English class I was so excited, I was so happy and I loved these films. I love, love, loved both of them. I thought they were some of the greatest shit I'd ever seen. So it's been kind of weird revisiting them now some 15 years later and finding that they didn't age quite as well as I remembered.
1: Yeah, I remember when Dracula came out and it came out in 1992 and my parents went on a date night to go see it and they were pretty open with me and like let me watch a lot of different movies and this was one of the few where they were like you know, I would have been, gosh, around seven or eight then, and they were like, you, sh- you should wait a little while to see this. It's it's a little sexy. Just, you know, tone it down. And I remember seeing Frankenstein a lot on TV, like TBS or something like that. So there were all these weird edits, but there are a couple moments that really stuck out in my mind, and I actually hadn't returned to go watch the whole thing in probably about ten years. Although Dracula, I seem to return to almost once a year to either reference something or write something and It's just one of those films. It's probably one of my most rewatched films. No kidding. And as we'll talk about, these films owe a lot to each other in terms of their production history. But another thing that's kind of fun to look back on for mine and Andrea's purposes is two years ago, I believe it was in February, we talked about Brides of Dracula and Bride of Frankenstein. So I feel like these kind of two monstrous figures of Dracula and Frankenstein's monster are constantly put together. They seem to exist in a kind of semiotic relationship. So it makes sense that they always exist around the same time, Their come out around the same time. They always seem to have a new reinvention around the same time. So this is the 90s take on Drack and Frank.
0: That's right. Like, these are universal monsters from the 1940s, and then Britain's Hammer Studios borrowed them in the 50s and 60s. Tons and tons of sequels, to the point that these characters became the stuff of spoof, largely. There are 32 movies to date with Dracula in the title, and 29 with Frankenstein. So we've picked two, and we're going to start off with Dracula, 1992.
1: occurred the frightening
0: and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. <sighs> yeah. Dracul. There is a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. for life he is unlike any man
1: what are you? vampires do exist this one we fight this one we
0: face can take on many forms he is both young and old
1: he can appear as mist as vapor as the fog he can vanish at will. Oh, my
0: love. The power of his evil desire has no end. You've got to go to him. You've got to love
1: him. He is a willing recruit, a devoted disciple. He is the devil's concubine. Oh. Join me
0: in the eternal life. Salvation is destruction.
1: I want to be what you are. I want to see what you see. I want to love what you love. Then take me away from all
0: this. In 1462, where Vlad Dracula is fighting the Turks, and he comes home only to discover that his beloved wife, Elisabetta, has committed suicide upon receiving the erroneous news of his death. Enraged that she's now damned for eternity because suicide, Dracula renounces God and drinks the blood of a stone cross that he stabs with his sword. Fast forward to 1897. Jonathan Harker is en route to Transylvania to meet with his client, Count Dracula, to write up paperwork for Dracula's real estate acquisition in London. Harker and Dracula meet, and things get really weird and awkward, especially when Drax sees a photo of Harker's fiancée, Mina, who looks a heck of a lot like Drac's dead bride. Dracula feeds Jonathan to his brides, who live in the bowels of his castle, who proceed to rape him and also feed off him while Dracula sails to England. Upon arrival, Dracula takes wolf-slash-dog form and attacks Lucy, Mina's wealthy best friend. Lucy starts to change drastically, so her fiancé and former suitors team up and summon Dr. Abraham Van Helsing, who quickly recognizes her as the victim of a vampire. When she finally dies and turns full vamp, everyone is effectively convinced of the existence of vampires, so they decapitate her and begin the hunt for her creator. Meanwhile, Dracula has assumed the form of a handsome gentleman and is actively courting Mina, who hasn't heard from her beloved Jonathan in a long time. She's standoffish at first, but he slowly charms her into a really intense friendship. However, Jonathan escapes Drac's castle and sends word to Mina that he's in Romania, so she drops everything to travel there and marry him. When they return, Dracula visits Mina and confesses to killing Lucy, but Mina is okay with it because she's having flashbacks of being Elizabetta and is now pretty much madly in love with Drac. She succumbs to him, even knowing what he is, because it means that they can be together forever. Before Dracula can turn her, though, Van Helsing and the guys interrupt them, and they exchange insults for a while before Dracula flees back to Transylvania. The team follows him overseas, where they split up, because Dracula is now able to read Mina's mind, and so she hides out with Van Helsing. At one point they're attacked by Dracula's chanting brides and Mina kind of joins in and tries to seduce the old man and then a big fight breaks out between the guys who've gone to hunt Dracula and some local gypsies and Dracula is weakened and Harker is able to slash his throat. He staggers inside and exchanges some sweetness with Mina before she cuts off his head and gazes loftily at the sky where Drac and Elisabetta are presumably reunited in heaven at last.
1: I actually have to commend Andrea on that, you know, very precise synopsis. And I think it's actually very well condensed. And it's almost a bit of a shame because I feel like the plot of this film is so secondary to everything that's going on within it. The performances, most of the performances, especially the costumes and the whole mise-en-scene, the whole shooting style of the film is so, it's so much more important than the actual story that it feels like a more secondary narrative against everything that it's up against visually.
0: Which is kind of funny because we had access to some behind-the-scenes footage of Dracula that Alex actually found on YouTube and shared with me, and I'll put it in the course notes of this episode. But behind the scenes, there's footage of the director, Francis Ford Coppola, and he's saying, you know, I've seen Dracula in so many old horror movies, and he never really had his story told the way it was told in the book. So I just really wanted to tell his story, this tragic love story where maybe he's not such a monster— But I I think he largely fails in that endeavor because, like Alex said, the story takes a harsh secondary to this beautifully stylish and erotic film that was commended for its practical effects, its costumes and great makeup. Uh, It won Academy Awards for costume design, makeup and sound editing.
1: And what's odd about this film, and we'll also mention it again probably in Frankenstein as well, is that they altered quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of Francis Ford Coppola and Brana saying that we really wanted to tell the original OG story that never gets told. And they do add in quite a few elements which are never done in previous incarnations of Dracula but they add in the huge element of the love story. You know, Mina in Bram Stoker's novel was never Drac's wife. She was never Elizabetta, She was just another victim. So the whole adding of the layer of the kind of past lives and then her reincarnation and their true love and true connection is a complete fabrication of this production. That's not to say it's a bad thing, but it is to keep that in mind when you have the emblazoned at the beginning of the film that is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Side note, footnote, end note, not really, whoops, don't worry about it. Yeah,
0: more like Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> One thing that the movie added in was the direct connection between Count Dracula and Vlad the Impaler, and I thought that was pretty cool. Bram Stoker was inspired by his own summer holidays that he spent in Whitby, and also European folklore surrounding vampires, and also a personal nightmare he had about a vampire king rising from the grave. But this whole Transylvanian-born Vlad the Impaler, he is said to have killed between 40,000 people and 100,000 people, and whether those people were civilians. Depends on if you're talking to the Saxon settlers who saw him, you know, as a monster and a torturer. But Vlad is actually revered as a hero in Romania for fending off the Ottoman Turks.
1: And I think, again, you know, just like using the title Bram Stoker's Dracula, tying it to a real historical figure gives it another layer of authenticity, that this is something true. This is something real. We are elevating it to this kind of amazing cultural level that this character has never seen before. There's a kind of odd fake sense of truth behind this film, which I find quite interesting. And I think it's important to note, as Andrea already mentioned a little bit, that Francis Ford Coppola, as well as the screenwriter, they very much wanted to go back to the book quite a bit. But it's important to kind of know how that script got to Francis Ford Coppola and that was by way of leading lady Winona Ryder who plays Mina. Now, Winona had actually dropped out of Coppola's film Godfather 3. She was eventually replaced with his daughter Sophia Coppola in the film and as a way to kind of make amends and say holy shit, I pissed off this amazing director and I hope we can just be cool with everything. An agent had passed her this script and she really liked it and really responded to it and she brought it to Coppola and he He immediately poured a lot of himself into it, saw a lot of stuff behind it. You know, at this time, when they were in pre-production, you know, 1990, 1991, this was the age of like the birth of CG almost. You know, we're kind of on the heels of Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Jurassic Park is still a few years away, but there's a real sense that this is the new technology that they should be using that's really exciting, that's going to get the crowds in. And Francis Ford Coppola, and you can see this in these YouTube videos, which again we'll post, he's so adamant about not wanting to do it and to actually go back to the filmmaking techniques that they were using at the turn of the 20th century, making it more effective authentic, more textured, more real, and really challenging himself as a filmmaker as well as his crew. And I think in doing so, it is this beautiful, prestige film, but it's so different from everything else that was made at the time, that was made before, and has been made since. It's so wholly unique in this visual style that I think that will elevate it beyond some of the kind of problematic narrative elements.
0: I found it really fascinating watching those YouTube videos because they were demonstrating the way certain sequences were done that were maybe 20 seconds in the film. Stuff that you're just kind of like, "Oh, hey, that's cool." And you just rolled with it. And maybe you didn't realize what a tremendous undertaking they were to do practically because as the audience, we just take it for granted, which I think is a huge testament to how effective they were. However, in watching these YouTube videos where everybody's patting themselves on the back for doing it old school, there is one super shitty CGI sequence that comes up twice in the film. And I'm hoping, Alex, you can explain this to me. But you know those, like, concentric rings of green fire that come out of the ground? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's, what, I have a feeling that it's it's meant to signify some kind of boundary that, like, once you cross that, you're in Dracula's layer, and maybe he has more power there. But that's essentially where he gets his throat slashed and shit. There doesn't seem to be any actual protectiveness of those rings.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of the... Uh, there's a real problem with internal logic in this film. And again, I think because of the passion behind it, a lot of the performances, so much of it, you know, you tend to forgive a lot until you are re-watching it or going back to it and really examining it. And then these things, it's like the wrong note in a, in a song where an instrument just goes haywire and you're like, Ugh, it's like a record scratch. <laughs> that moment is especially offensive in a way because you are barreling towards this amazing climax of this film which has been really really working towards this moment for the two hours that it goes on only to just have it fall apart with a brief flash of crappy cgi in an otherwise so well-made film and
0: they don't talk about it in the making of it it was probably added after the fact for some stupid reason that they don't want to acknowledge but we would be remiss if we didn't mention it on the show and another thing that we have to mention it's kind of the elephant in the studio right now is that the acting in this film i want to say that it sucks but gary oldman is amazing everybody else sucks what
1: no i think that's yeah
0: Everybody else more or less sucks, and the critics were onto it from the very beginning. Like, overall the reviews were positive, it's so stylish, it's so erotic, and the critics praised Oldman and they just crucified Reeves. One critic said specifically, you can visibly see Keanu attempting not to end every one of his lines with, dude.
1: No way! (laughs)
0: And now I can't look back on the film without seeing the word dude in all of those lines. His accent was terrible, uh, Reeves and Ryder alike, and even great actors like Anthony Hopkins. I thought he
1: was awful. I think it's one of the more interesting portrayals of Van Helsing. To me, it actually really made me laugh several times because he is so flippant. He is so irreverent. You know, there is the line that he says about the head and the stabbing. I want you to bring me before nightfall a set of post-mortem knives. An autopsy. An autopsy? No, 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 not exactly. I just want to cut off her head and take out her heart. That line has been used in several other incarnations of Dracula, and it's said often with such gravity. You know, there's such a moment when that line is said, and Anthony Hopkins just, whoop, what? This is what we do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love the idea of Van Helsing. I love the idea of a medical doctor who is a man of science, also has this mystical belief, like he's the one who knows what a vampire is. The man of science is the one saying that this is a monster and an abomination. And I always thought that was so cool about Van Helsing. But Hopkins just, I, I feel like he can't play a supporting player. He can't not steal the show. And once again, harkening back to those YouTube videos, we can see that Francis Ford Coppola really encouraged his actors to collaborate. He kind of gave them a little acting boot camp before they started filming, just so that they all connect and they can improvise and the script changed here and there. And so there's this whole thing where Van Helsing finally meets Mina..
1: The darkness is in life, my child, and there are lights,
0: and you are one of the lights, dear Mina, the light of all light. And I hate that scene. First of all, I feel like it belittles the character of Mina. I think Van Helsing is really condescending toward her and is like, oh, look, this is Dracula's pretty little flower that we're going to use as bait. Okay, run along to your friend now and I'm going to dance with you and kiss you. And like, it was just fucked up. And in this making up featurette, we've got him saying, oh, I think we should do this because I think it enhances. Like, shut up. Fuck off. I thought that was so dumb.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. That scene is incredibly odd. I just felt really uncomfortable every time I've watched it. But I think in this film, and again, these films that we're talking about today, really exist within the context of all the films that have come before them of this ilk. And I think Van Helsing in this film functions as an audience conduit. While everyone else is like, I'm Victorian! Hello! Hello! And, you know, talking about whatever the fuck they're talking about, Van Helsing is the one who's like, to the point, this is what we have to do. You're all fucking dumbasses because you weren't listening to me and oh now you're finally catching up so he's us the audience who have watched all these films or are aware of them also that man can really wear a hat
0: after we read the book i said if anyone can see something from the book that's not in the script that you think it ought to be please send it to me and we'll put out a script that has it all in so they all did and of course they all made their parts three times bigger and we put out the script and there it was
1: So we want to kind of get into a few of the characters right now. And I think to situate those characters, it's important to really contextualize when this film is set and when the book was set, which again is a few years before the turn of the 20th century. This was when England was pretty much at the height of its power it was getting incredible imports it was a huge financial power basically england could do no wrong and there was all this technology there was all of this stuff infiltrating the culture and you can see that throughout the film you can see everything from jonathan when he goes to romania at the very beginning and he receives a letter from dracula
0: my friend welcome to the carpathian's I am anxiously expecting you at the Borgo Pass, if my carriage will await you and bring you to me. I trust your journey from London has been a happy one, and that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land.
1: Which then, just a few minutes later, cuts to Mina writing in her diary on a typewriter, which is, you know, a totally new technology for that time. And she's trying to educate herself about it. And you even see Lucy, her best friend, kind of make fun of her and seem a little scared of all this new technology. So you know, a lot of those elements make up the foundation of a gothic novel. And it's the fear of that, you know, the movement towards technology is going to dehumanize society. It's going to make us less lovable. It will make us less able to love. We will be able to connect less. There was a really big fear and anxiety around those elements. So you can kind of see in Dracula, the book, there's a real need to romanticize humanity. And there is kind of a fear of the old world and that the old world is actually really fucked up and really corrupt and it's going to be a vampire that comes and gets you and oh no! Whereas in the film, when you add that layer of the love story between Dracula and Mina, it actually makes you know a stronger argument for the past that there is something truer, more beloved about the past that draws you to it. It's more real, essentially. It's more honest than all the fakery that's going on around it. I think... Such a big part of this movie is made up of the relationship between Dracula and Mina and Lucy. And he has two very different relationships with those women. And we can't really not talk about it. No, we can't. It
0: it bears mention that in the book, Lucy is very much a prim and proper lady, even more stuck up than Mina, whereas in this movie, we have conversations between the two characters where Mina's just like, oh, Lucy, you're so in touch with your body and your stuff when I am so, so horny. And then even in her costume, even in the garb that she wears, everything is very tight-laced and high-necked, whereas Lucy is very much on display. And part of that is her wealth. Part of that is the fact that Back then, women couldn't be heirs, and so they couldn't really inherit your wealth, but they could lure another wealthy person, thereby making your family even more wealthy. So she's very much on display as a pawn. And I felt like Mina is also used as a pawn in this whole scheme to get Dracula, whereas in the book, Mina showed a lot more agency in that she was pouring over all these journals and all these documents and assembling evidence to catch Dracula. Without that love story, she was just one of the guys, so to speak.
1: Yeah, and I think because Bram Stoker's Dracula the film posits that it is a romantic, tragic love story, so in the gaze of the film, they're transplanting Mina from a victim to a heroine.
0: I almost feel like he changed Mina slightly to fit with cinematic conventions of the final girl, quite frankly. If she's going to be this virtuous, virginal character, then we need to tone down her sexuality. And then if it's still going to be such an erotic movie, that means we have to crank Lucy's up.
1: Yeah, and I feel that it was such a contemporized move for the filmmakers to make Lucy hyper-sexualized, hyper-open. The fact that she and Mina kiss, and they're in the rain, and they're all like over each other. And there was so little that she had to be pushed to do. That you felt that close tie between Lucy and the Brides of Dracula, that, you know, the women who exist in Dracula's castle who are eternally sexual, internally wanting to seduce you in order to drain your life power. And I felt that Lucy was actually just the Victorian London version of that, the more kind of socially acceptable version.
0: One thing I really struggled with as regards Mina is this whole reincarnation of Elisabetta. It was kind of dealt with too briefly. I think if it had been a gradual thing, I might have been able to roll with it a little bit better. But basically there's one really intense encounter that she has with Dracula when he's in his kind of European gentleman garb. And all of a sudden she gets it and is like, holy shit, I'm actually her and I'm in love with you. And that's kind of a different level of mysticism than this movie posits. And it's kind of a leap for the audience, I found. Like if we're going to give into that you can pierce a stone cross with a knife and blood's going to come out of it and you drink it. And that symbolizes you turning away from God. But now we're talking reincarnation. Like that's not even a Christian thing. That's a whole different ball of wax.
1: Yeah, again, that's that fun internal logic this film has, and I think it kind of tries to speak to the love that Vlad or Dracula had with Mina or Elisabetta, actually beyond God, it's beyond Christianity, it's beyond all of these things that we hold so dear and we value so high. And I think it's also important to mention that the tagline for this film, the thing that was emblazoned on every poster, was love never dies. right. And it seems, you know, maybe when you're younger as like this kind of amazing, tragic, emo thing that you're just going to love someone so much. But the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, God, that sounds like a goddamn threat. Mainly because Dracula essentially nags Mina into hanging out with him. And I'm like, calm down, buddy. A woman so lovely and intelligent should not be walking the streets of London without her gentlemen.
0: It also bears mentioning that Francis Ford Coppola is an undisputed cinematic powerhouse. Like, he is, to date, he's a brand. Coppola is a lifestyle brand. They've got resorts, they've got a winery, they've got a cafe and restaurant chain, literary publications, you name it. Like, this family has their fingers everywhere. I mean, obviously, most of our listeners probably know that Francis Ford Coppola is uncle to Nicholas Kim Coppola, a.k.a. Nicholas Cage. He's also uncle to Jason Schwartzman of Rushmore and I Heart Huckabees. And his sister is Talia Shire, who is also an actress. So, like, there There's a lot of pedigree going on here, but Francis Ford Coppola is not known for making romance movies. He is known for the Godfather trilogy and Apocalypse Now. And if I were pressed to, in a family feud type setting, name the top despairing, soul-ripping movies in the world, they would be among the top ten.
1: But I think it's important to mention because really in 1992 or the early 90s, Francis Ford Coppola is still really at the height of his power. He hadn't really kind of regressed as much into this Hollywood icon who I imagine just hangs out at his winery all the time and lets his son Roman Coppola, who also worked on this film, and his daughter Sofia Coppola just go off and make all the movies for the next generation. And so I think what you see in this version of Dracula, obviously we've mentioned it's erotic, it's highly sexualized, but along with Francis Ford Coppola's clout at the beginning of the 90s, another big issue and another big, pressing, scary thing in the news then, and, you know, still kind of is, was the AIDS crisis. This is when it really hit mainstream, and a lot of people and a lot of theorists and a lot of film scholars really draw a very, very clear parallel between the AIDS crisis and this film, and I think it really has to do with the relationship between Dracula and the women. So in the novel and quite a few of the other Dracula stories surrounding the mythos, Lucy and Mina or whatever their incarnations were were just kind of hapless victims they just happened to be there Dracula happened to bite them and whoops they're vampires or might be vampires now in this film it posits that Lucy's lust somehow draws Dracula to her or she to him and there's a lot of kind of I think consensual bestiality that happens in this film. So, you know, she wants it, she's consenting, and then she becomes infected with the vampirism disease. And it's even more clear with Mina, who goes from kind of hapless victim or one of the guys, to this kind of lovelorn heroine who begs, begs to be like him. She begs to have this disease or whatever it is so she can be like him. <sighs> to be what you are, see what you see, love what you love. I think that's, you know, one of the huge differences from this interpretation against so many others is the vampirism and the monstrosity is not out of Dracula's like, I got to feed, I got to eat, and then we'll figure it out. It's these women want it.
0: That's right. I think part of Dracula's evil is his unbridling of female sexuality that's part of what's so oh my god he's so mystical he's allowing this to happen and even encouraging it and in a lot of the horror scholarship that I read, there's always this kind of chronology where different things are popular at different times, depending on what's going on in society. But in the 90s, there was definitely a preoccupation about AIDS, rightfully so. The transmission of blood and the link between sexuality and the transmission of fluids is made very apparent in vampire lore, and that's why there was a bit of a bump of that in the 90s. Not just Bram Stoker's Dracula, toward the end of the 80s, you had The Lost Boys, which was again. They were young, and they were screwing and spreading the disease and tempting with these hot women. And then there was Interview with the Vampire, which again had this great sexuality tied to it, this great seduction. And then when zombies became popular later, it's a similar thing, really. This is a disease that's transmitted through consumption, but it's the eating of the flesh, and there's nothing erotic about zombies. There's been a couple of movies that kind of try to eroticize the zombie lore, but by and large, it's a story about consumption. Consumption and it speaks to the American apprehensions about consumption and overconsumption and exhausting our resources, so to speak. So, this film is a testament to its time, which is perhaps maybe why it performed better than its counterpart that we're going to talk to a little
1: later. So, to start to wrap up this conversation of Dracula, I think it's important to kind of contextualize a lot of this stuff and bring it down to this core thing. And I think the change, the big change that all the little changes Francis Ford Coppola and the other filmmakers and creative team made to Bram Stoker's original story is that in this film, Dracula is sexy and desirable precisely because he is not new. He is old. He is this past romanticism. When a film is released in the early 90s, you kind of look at it's part of not only the AIDS crisis, it's part of the steampunk movement. It's part of all of these little things that are infiltrating our culture where we are kind of looking back to a quote-unquote simpler time. And even when Dracula appears to Mina on the streets of London as this young hot guy, he's quite old-fashioned. It's like the please and the thank you and this and that. In the novel, he is fearsome because of exactly those things. There is something untrustworthy, there is something unexplored, there is something not quite right in the book about Eastern Europe and Romania, and where they are sought to go venture, whereas in the movie, especially because we spend so much time with Mina, it seems like this incredibly desirable place to go, not only because this sexy vampire person is there, but because she feels a kinship, she wants to go back there. Some kind of part of her past self remembers this beautiful land. A land beyond a great vast forest
0: surrounded by majestic mountains lush vineyards flowers of such Frailty and beauty is to be found nowhere
1: else. And I think that's why this version of Dracula is so particularly interesting because it adds so much back into the story. It it takes so much from the original source material, but with a few small tweaks. And really, they aren't huge plot devices. They aren't huge things that they're putting on top of the story, but they alter it so much. And I think... That's why I really get off on narrative criticism, on film criticism, on scholarship, on all of this stuff, because each generation we tweak all of this stuff just slightly just to suit our needs and we're constantly refining these stories so that they remain relevant so not only is Coppola starting to compete with the cinematic quality and the experimentation that was going on in music videos at the same time but he's also tweaking it to a social atmosphere and for as much as Dracula fails in a lot of ways this film succeeds in so many other ways.
0: That's right. And maybe something else, maybe just one last thing I'll bring up before we move on from Dracula is that as a feminist podcast, I feel like I have to at least mention how weak men are depicted in this film. I think Alex coined the amazing term that I've seen some people pick up on Twitter is that men are not just dick havers. And here they are in this movie where they are just utter and total slaves to their libido. And I feel that particularly in the problematic form of Van Helsing, when he's seduced by Mina, he's supposed to be the one who knows what's up. He's supposed to be the one who's going to be like, "Ah, ah, I knew you were going to do this. I'm not going to fall for it. No, he makes out with her for a second before things go on. And then you also have the sense that Jonathan Harker's giving himself over to these brides a little bit because... You get that much from Keanu Reeves. Well, Mina's not giving it up. I mean, (laughs) give the guy some credit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just, I really particularly, to illustrate that point, love that scene early on in the film when Lucy's having the party and her suitors all literally are tripping over themselves to get to her. And it's a very silly moment, but it is also like all these guys are just trying to get in that.
0: Well, and then they all team up to save her, even though she's clearly picked the rich one out of the smart one, the handsome one, or the whatever one.
1: It's so wonderful, I've decided! I love him, and I've said yes! (laughs) So finally, don't tell me.
0: The Texan with the big knife. Oh no. To my dear number three, Lord Arthur Homewood. Lord and Lady Homewood. Another reason I feel like this story would benefit from a remake now, and this actually applies to Dracula and Frankenstein, which we're going to move on to momentarily, is these are essentially found-footage books So you would think today when we're filthy with found footage movies, somebody would have picked up on this epistolary format where the book Dracula is essentially a condensation of the story being told through letters and diary entries and ship's logs and occasionally even newspaper clippings. Like the story is told from the perspective of this data, which is actually pretty cool if you think about it, because that is kind of the only stuff that you can really consider true. They say that history is written by those who win. But when it comes to letters and transcripts like that, that's not people writing history as they remembered it. That's people writing it as they happened. And it's such a great way to tell a story. And it would have lent itself so beautifully to the film.
1: And they do try to incorporate it in different ways. And it comes and it kind of goes. And for the time and for maybe not seeing that narrative trope utilized really before – on film, they did a pretty good job. And I think for me, the epistolary format comes out with the different characters we spend time with in different ways. So obviously, we spent a lot of time with Jonathan Harker and then Dracula and Mina and a bit Lucy. But one of the characters I found very interesting, who I think would have gotten lost and has gotten lost in a lot of other interpretations, is that of Dr. Seward, who is played by Richard E. Grant, who is one of my favorite actors. So maybe that's a bias on my part. And he is the doctor who is one of Lucy's suitors, and he also hangs out with Renfield, who's played by Tom Waits in this. So it's just really weird scenes. But by the inclusion of characters like that, by the inclusion of their narratives and their thoughts, what we see is a kind of fractured nature of the subjectivity of this film. So Bram Stoker's Dracula is not a movie about a monster, It is a movie about a monster in a world, and it does some things very successfully, as I've said before, and some things not so successfully, but I think there are just so many different moving pieces to the film, and it made a step forward with it, and I'd like to see more steps. So from there, we're moving
0: on to another literary great, another, if you were lucky, you looked at this in high school and watched it and enjoyed it. Because if you saw this movie outside of the context of high school, I don't know what you would have thought, because once again, on the rewatch, it was a little bit bland.
1: Yeah, again, we're coming to this film under the guise of a cultural prestige, under romance, all this stuff. But it's also Women in Horror Month. And one of my favorite women in horror has to be Mary Shelley. She had a kind of oddly normal life for having written one of the most seminal books in, I think, English history, being Frankenstein. But then she also kind of led this, you know, bizarre recluse life. We're going to talk about the ways that Kenneth Branagh built up the story and then totally tore it apart. So that is to say that we are now going to venture into the incesty, ab-having, bizarre territory of Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. No one need ever die. I will stop this. No,
0: you can't achieve death won't know, unless we try.
1: I warn you, what you are suggesting is not only illegal, it is immoral.
0: What's happened to you?
1: Yes, that's the combination.
0: Action.
1: The film begins in the Arctic, where Captain Walton is urging his men forward on a dangerous mission. They hear terrifying noises in the distance and encounter Victor Frankenstein. Frankenstein tells him his life story. Frankenstein grew up in Geneva with loving parents and his adopted sister, Elizabeth. While in his teens, his mother dies suddenly in childbirth after giving birth to Victor's younger brother, William. When Victor's mentor, Professor Waldman, is murdered, Victor becomes obsessed with reanimating bodies and creating life, something which Waldman had already kind of started on. After obtaining the body of the patient who'd killed Waldman, who had just been hung, Victor successfully reanimates the body and becomes scared and disgusted by the creature he has created. The creature runs away with Victor's coat and Victor's journal, while Victor returns to Geneva to recuperate. The creature encounters humanity to varying degrees of success and tracks Victor down in Geneva, killing his little brother and framing the family servant Justine. Justine is then hung by a mob, and the creature demands that Victor make him a mate, someone to live with, and the creature threatens Victor that if Victor does not create this mate for him, that he will return to Victor on his wedding night to Elizabeth. Victor refuses, and after marrying Elizabeth, the two try to escape. The creature catches up with them and rips Elizabeth's heart out of her still-beating chest. Victor sews Elizabeth's head to Justine's body in hopes of reviving Elizabeth. Both Victor and the creature appear, and both of them want Elizabeth, but she kills herself instead. Since then, Victor has been chasing his creation. After realizing some kind of responsibilities, he tells the story to Captain Walton. Victor dies, and Walton's crew and the creature burn his body.
0: Now, once again, we talked about how Bram Stoker's Dracula came at the right time. It came in the 90s. It was a good time for a love story. It was a good time for a love story about monstrous diseases passed through blood. Frankenstein, however, insofar as it's a very old tale, the mad scientist tale is in horror movies throughout nearly every decade. However, this
1: Frankenstein doesn't feel quite as timely as Bram Stoker's Dracula did. I would have to say, and we're going to get into the production history of this film right now, a lot of this has to do with the, I cannot think of another way to put it, the raging ego of Kenneth Branagh. So after Dracula finished and it was generally really well received, there was a really great response to it, Francis Ford Coppola began to look at other horror properties and actually began to develop this version of Frankenstein, taking Mary Shelley's book as the basis and doing it in a very similar way. At some point during, you know, casting and initial meetings and pre-productions, he met with Kenneth Branagh. And I guess Kenneth Branagh was so passionate that... Coppola handed over the directing reins to him, but Coppola remains on the film as a producer. Now, the film was written by two screenwriters, one of whom was Frank Darabont, who I'm sure you know from writing The Shawshank Redemption, as well as developing The Walking Dead television series. Basically, everyone except Kenneth Branagh has publicly renounced this film. Darabont has, Coppola has. It just became something quite different to the point where Darabont gave an interview saying, we turned in our completed version of the script. Ken had it in his contract to do a rewrite. This is quite normal. Directors usually do a polish on it. And when they went to the premiere of the film, they said that the script was, to paraphrase, essentially Frankenstein from their original version. The original version was really a parallel story between the creature and Frankenstein, but in the final film version, it is very much Victor Frankenstein's story. Like, before we go on, I should say, like, Brana he's no slouch. This film
0: did seem very masturbatory but he has made a lot of amazing films as director as producer as screenwriter he's had a prolific career particularly in adapting Shakespeare Henry V for example got lots of Oscar nods best actor best director Hamlet he was knighted in 2012 however this Frankenstein remains a giant misstep in his career now when I watched it as a teenager in class I loved it and I loved loved Branna. I had such a crush on him. He's handsome. He's dashing. He's passionate. He's smart. He's largely topless for a large portion of it. And like my heart went out to Robert De Niro's creature. You know, when he cries these racking sobs after being rejected from that family that he lived with for several months, I thought it was so deep and so gripping. And yet when I rewatched it last week, I was laughing and laughing. It was so over the top and inaccessible, and particularly the part where Victor Frankenstein releases his creature and is trying to get him to stand. And this is like several minutes of two of them in this embryonic goo that is probably Astroglide. And looking at the footage, I'm like, they are so slippy and luby. And one of them's half naked and the other's completely naked. And i uh, get him to stand up and slip and fall. And oh, uh, he's almost standing again and slipping fall. And then his rejection it seems so baseless. It's almost like, ah, uh, you couldn't get him to stand up, so fuck this creature.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think this film has a lot of the same weaknesses as Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, but none of the high points. So, to start this conversation, I think it's important to look at what Brana and co added back into the film from the novel by Mary Shelley. The big ads were the Justine subplot, the servant who is framed, the Walton narrative wraparound story in the Arctic, which had never before been put on film, and as well, the creature's use of self-education. He teaches himself to read and to think and to feel, essentially, because he didn't have a father. He had to figure this all out for himself. That's amazing that they added in those things because those elements add a lot of layers, a lot of subtext, a lot of meaning to the film. But what Kenneth Branagh stripped away, and I'm going to blame him on this because I can't think who else would have made these decisions, but they strip away Everything else from Victor Frankenstein, any sense of culpability, any sense of responsibility, anything that he ever felt really bad about in the book. Now, the thing that makes it the most clear for me is in the Justine subplot. So in the film, what you have is this young girl who grows up with Victor and Elizabeth, and she's just around and kind of implied she might have a crush on Victor. And then she's horrifically framed for the death of the young boy, William. And the mob basically runs away with her, doesn't even give her a trial, just Hangs her, and in the film, you know you see Victor and Elizabeth running against the crowd, screaming to save her.
0: My God, what are they doing? They must have broken
1: into the jail. What well, for God's sake, God? You stop there? It's not gone wild. This is a lynching oh, stop! This is unlawful. They can't do anything. It's too too late. While in the book, there's a whole trial, there is a whole thing, and Victor sits quietly on the side, knowing that his creation is responsible for not only his younger brother's death, but also Justine's horrible end to her life, and he does nothing. So in the book, Victor is a much darker figure. He's much more of an antihero, and there is, you know, the subtitle in the book, the book is called Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. Now, Promethean was the figure from Greek mythology who went up to Mount Olympus to steal fire from the gods. And in Shelley's book, there is a sense that Victor is trying to steal life from God or from whatever kind of life force that is controlling us. Whereas in this film, Victor seems incredibly motivated by very specific things. So it's the death of his mother, it's the death of Waldman, and then it's the death of Elizabeth. It's not a bigger project for him. It's these very specific things that he wants to do. That's right. It's almost
0: the implication that the technological glory of conquering death isn't enough. Like, you needed to add extra reasons why Victor
1: Frankenstein would want to conquer death, why he would want to make life. Yeah, to say is kind of a pseudo-sequel to all the Frankenstein films that have come before this one. This time, it's personal. And Victor is so involved in his own life and his own desires that he cannot see anything beyond it. He's not a true scientist. He's not a true doctor. He's just a very, very selfish young man. And you can't see it because this is a podcast, but I'm using young in quotation marks because he's not 18 in this film. He's like mid-30s, but they keep saying he is. Now, one of the merits of
0: the Justine subplot is I thought it was really cool how the mob was just like, nope, she did it, hang her, and there was nothing they could do. The deed was done before they could even jump in. And I felt like that was the only thing that really validated Victor Frankenstein's rejection of his monster. There wasn't very much inner turmoil with Victor. Victor just kind of took one look at him and is like, oh shit, you're ugly and you can barely stand. You're an abomination and I should have never done this. And he just writes him off. And when I was watching it, I was kind of like, what the? The fuck, And then I thought more about how this was a time where mob justice was the way it was. And one look at this creature, society would have never accepted him. And so it calls a lot of things into question such as making life, does that have any value if it's not beautiful? That's kind of a dark rumination that I wish the film spent some time on.
1: But the film is a lot more, as I've already said, invested in Victor Frankenstein, and it goes to the point where it's like every other character who is not Victor Frankenstein wants to fuck Victor Frankenstein, like to the point where it's actually just awkward and uncomfortable, and I just feel like it's such a disservice, and this is where the kind of quote-unquote tour gets in the way of his own story. And, you know, that's been a big part of Brona's career, especially in his heyday, especially from, you know, Henry V to Hamlet to, you know, Much Ado About Nothing and Love's Labor's Lost and all those other things he's done, especially in the realm of Shakespeare. He tends to give himself the best parts. Fair enough. But at the disservice of story, particularly in this way, It's so traumatic and it's so upsetting because we've subsequently seen a few other incarnations of Frankenstein. You had Victor Frankenstein, which came out last year with James McAvoy and Daniel Radcliffe. You had I, Frankenstein with Aaron Eckhart. You have all of these things which are kind of still playing with the mythos. But I feel like this could have been the closest thing to actually get to Shelley's original story, which is so powerful, so creepy, so heartbreaking. And it just shit the bed.
0: That's right. And another example of a modern day Frankenstein that I'd like to bring up is we don't talk a whole lot about TV horror in the podcast, but if you're watching Penny Dreadful, Penny Dreadful is taking bits and pieces, is Frankensteining together, for lack of a better term, a lot of old horror tropes. There's a Van Helsing style character and there's a witchcraft storyline and a werewolf storyline, but there is also a Victor Frankenstein. And the Victor Frankenstein in Penny Dreadful is this skinny, Pale, sickly man who's just all about the science and is tormented in his head with all of his ideas and that which is within his reach and that which is beyond his reach. And he's actually addicted to opiates and he creates his monster and he rejects him once again for being ugly. But his creation is actually a very sensitive and erudite man who goes off on his own and he's a poet and he's a writer and he loves literature and he's very soft and sweet and. His creation goes on to have a storyline about how he finds work as a stagehand for a local theater production company because he's incredibly strong. And then later he's involuntarily thrust in a freak show type setting. So I feel like I actually have an example of how well this story could work if updated in more interesting ways such that it doesn't really all have to be about Victor Frankenstein. There's way bigger ideas at play.
1: Now, the thing that struck me on the rewatch of this film was how deeply, and I think inadvertently, this film is about class. And it seemed to radiate to me from almost every scene in a way that it doesn't truly in the book and it doesn't in films like Dracula like we just talked about but I feel like this version of Frankenstein is really about the privilege that Victor's class offers him it offers him a certain amount of protection a certain amount of being removed from the pain of his life like yes he's heard about the death of his mother and the death of his professor but he has the means to create life which he does and then as Andrea already mentioned the second that that life is not Beautiful and aesthetically pleasing and incredibly smart right off the bat, he rejects it. And then the creature's life actually becomes like a upper class nightmare of what it is to be lower status. It's this fever dream of all the bad things that will befall someone if they're not up to snuff in the eyes of the class system. That's right. It's
0: almost like the creature is his bastard. It's almost as if Victor Frankenstein, the young, white, rich boy, went into a brothel and made a bad mistake. And, oh, shit, I renounce you because you could really ruin my fucking life. And the monster's like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to really ruin your fucking life. So that is a story, again, that's played out again and again and again. I also feel like this story has such tremendous potential to call the very definition of life into question. Like, this is a story that could ruminate on some really big ideas. Like, Victor's obsession stems from his departed mother, and he almost ruins his own life in the project. He almost loses Elizabeth in his passion for this project. And then he determines that the creature's life is worthless because it's ugly, and then the creature says his life-slash-happiness-slash-very-essence is predicated on having a mate. So this entire film is really reductive with regard to what life is and what a good life is and a life worth living.
1: And I would say that if I felt like the film had a different sense of itself, I could say, yes, it's a film condemning the heteronormative structure of our society. But I feel like Brana's viewpoint was Far too narrow, and you know you can't really create in a vacuum anymore. I don't think we ever could, but especially with the advent of pop culture and mass media and all of these things, it gets harder and harder. So despite Brana trying to make the definitive version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, he had to incorporate certain elements from other films into his film. So while in the novel, the monster does show up on Victor's wedding night killing Elizabeth. Victor doesn't reanimate her. He doesn't try to make the what-what with, you know, his undead bride. But in a heavy, heavy nod to Bride of Frankenstein, he reanimates Elizabeth using her head and Justine's body, which I guess works. And you have this really problematic scene. So, so Victor reanimates Justine, and she's torn apart. Her scalp is burned. She's a fucking mess. And Victor's trying just to get her to say his name. And then the creature shows up, and the creature starts saying things like, you're beautiful, and I want you. Elizabeth!
0: You're beautiful. Say my name.
1: Elizabeth. Come to me. Come to me. And all I could think of was that Poor undead Elizabeth slash Justine is torn between a man who just wants her to say his name and another creature who is just telling her that she's pretty. God, I I would kill myself. That sounds horrifying. You're absolutely right. Elizabeth is little more than
0: a pawn being handed around between these two men. She has no agency of her own whatsoever.
1: Same with Justine. There is one moment in the film when someone gives Victor shit— And that is Elizabeth when she goes to see him right around the time he's about to create life, when he's about to create the creature. And she gives him shit because he's in the middle of a cholera epidemic and she's trying to get him to leave and she gives him shit. What's happened to you? How can you live here like this? And that stench! But almost immediately that dissipates and it's like, oh, I hope I get to marry my adopted brother. And it felt so deeply reductive in a way that felt so unintentional. And it just felt like Brano was trying to equate Victor Frankenstein with the erotic love-lorn figure of Count Dracula that Francis Ford Coppola had done a few years before. And it just doesn't work like that. Well, I think it
0: could have worked, but he just didn't go there. It was about Victor Frankenstein being willing to die for his work and wanting to play God. He's not willing to die for her. And the science aspect in Frankenstein is certainly no less relevant now. What with cloning, stem cell research is so hotly contested by the religious right. I really wish somebody would take it up and do it again now. I'm saying that about both of these movies, that drastically in need of a reboot with Common Times. Let's do it, guys.
1: The way this film deals with motherhood is actually quite interesting to me. So in the book, Victor's mother dies of scarlet fever after giving birth to William. That's just kind of a thing that happens. He's sad. It doesn't pull him forward in the way that it does in the film. Whereas in the film, Victor's mother dies in childbirth. And I think there is a real sense that they wanted to link it to Mary Shelley's own life. Now, Mary Shelley's mother, who was herself a feminist and a poet and a thinker and a pretty amazing woman on her own died a few days after giving birth to Mary Shelley due to an infection which hadn't been caught and it always left this hole in Mary Shelley's life, every biography I've read of her now it's interesting that it seems to equate a kind of female childbirth or the medical system around childbirth which sees Victor's father who is also a doctor trying to make the birth happen and the mother says God, you save the baby that she will give her own life for this, you know, about to be born child. And then I was so astounded watching this version of Frankenstein for the creation scene. He just kind of mimicked human organs, and I'm sure this was a production design decision and they thought they were being so clever, but it's like the eels pop out of like something that looks exactly like a ball sack, and then they like go down a tube, and then the monster is created within this tomb-like thing where all the amniotic fluid rushes in and it animates him and he falls out amongst all the goo. And he is helpless as a newborn babe, as Andrea already described. But there is a sense of refining and making better the troubled human reproductive system.
0: It's hard to sympathize with someone like Victor Frankenstein who rejects his creation outright when the moral fairy tale of women is you love your child no matter what, no matter if he's a monster, you would die to protect that. So it's an interesting illustration about the flip side of that coin isn't quite the same.
1: Oh, yeah, it's a whole creationism narrative in this film, but he's hiding behind his own class privilege, which, again, I feel is so unintentional in this film. I feel like we are supposed to side with Victor so hard throughout the film, but it just felt odd and tonally incorrect that... As we mentioned before in Dracula, when this green CGI flames go up, that was the moment of the record scratch. The record is scratching all over the place in this film. And it's such a shame because I feel like there is such opportunity and such a sense of goodwill behind this film to really make it far more accurately than had been before. Another thing I want to talk about is the narrative wraparound of the Captain Walton story. Again, I I don't mean to make fun of this film too much, but it literally looks like they stuck a wig on Aidan Quinn, who plays Captain Walton, shoved him out into a scene, which I feel like you can see things shake that aren't supposed to shake, and sent him out to do a scene. And in the novel, this is really supposed to play out as Victor's penance. This is his mea culpa, like his, I will tell you everything because I need to unburden myself, but also take responsibility at the same time and warn you not to go down the same path I have gone down. And it just seems like a weird ego-stroking exercise in this film, to the point where, when Kenneth Branagh or Victor Frankenstein, they are one and the same, frankly, lies down beautifully, like, he's, he's supposed to have been in the Arctic for, like, years, and he just looks slightly flushed. And he, like, lies down, and his eyes flutter, and he's finishing his final lines. I'm dying. And then he just dies. And I was like, I think he realized some kind of responsibility. I'm not sure. And then it seemed like the burden of understanding, the burden of making amends really fell on Captain Walton, not on Victor Frankenstein.
0: Well, yeah, Captain Walden is constructed as this man who is dead set on being the guy who discovers the North Pole he wants to go he wants to achieve immortality through his work and his crew is like dude we can't do this we're all gonna die you included like what are you doing and so Victor's like okay I don't want you to be like me I don't want you to sacrifice your humanity for this ideal of immortality but again that just it doesn't carry through
1: And it's such an interesting thing, especially when we look at the epistolary format, which this book also embraced, to a lesser degree than Bram Stoker's Dracula. There are less interweavings of things. But the suggestion is that in the effort to seek immortality, we leave traces of ourselves all over this world. We leave the letters, we leave the notes, we leave the thoughts. We leave these things behind, and they leave the trace of us. It's not the great accomplishment, it's not everything, but we are ultimately remembered by the people who are most important to us, or hopefully we are. So I think it plays against this humanistic need to connect with those that we are closest to, our family, our loved ones, our friends, versus this awe-inspiring, godlike need to make a difference.
0: So overall, we suggested these two films as mid-'90s rehashings of pretty canonical horror entries, These are stories that have been told time and time again, but both of these filmmakers felt that none of the cinematic adaptations had really done it justice until now. But I think as we've looked at, they both kind of shit the bed in their own way. Sympathy for Victor Frankenstein and sympathy for Count Dracula are really key to both of these stories, which is maybe what both of these movies are missing.
1: And I think in... Both of these films, again, they share a lot of the same production DNA in a lot of senses. But I think in both cases, the authorial hand gets in the way. And I'm not talking about the original authors who they are trying to honor. But I think it's the directors who kind of can't stop playing and can't stop tweaking and can't stop wanting to make their own mark on these. And at the same time, neither of these films can exist without the films that had come before them. So they're deeply indebted to the past, not only from their original source text, but from all the iterations that came from them.
0: And I think the one other thing that I'd like to maybe emphasize about this discussion is that there is a timelessness to these tales. There is ample scope to modernize these stories in meaningful ways that we're still waiting for.
1: Yeah, so we want to hear from you. Do you have a favorite version? Is it one of the Universal? Is it one of the Hammer? Is it something else? Is it something newer? Is it something you're working on? We'd love to hear about it and get some conversation starting because I know Andrea and I are still very hungry for something cinematic to represent these amazing stories and... I think, again, the thing we keep coming back to in this episode is that these source texts are so rich and so deep that we can constantly pull from them. So that's uh, that's our challenge to you. Just tell us what you think. For our next episode, to give you some actual homework, we are going to go a little bit more modern than the 90s. We are going to talk about bad mothers. We just talked about some bad fathers. So let's talk about some bad moms. So we will be talking about the two recent films, The Babajook and Goodnight Mommy.
0: I don't think we've ever actually had an episode about two films that are as recent as these are but we did make sure that they had both been released on DVD so you should be able to get a hold of them but I'm really eager to dive into both of these very very interesting films. And on the heels of that, we have started planning for our next episode. We've already mentioned what we're going to do for March. So for our April episode, we were thinking of doing something extra special. And we were thinking of doing something hot on the heels of Rumorg magazine's new book in their library series called Blood in Four Colors, a graphic history of horror comics and it's a book based on Pedro Cabezuelo's Blood in Four Colors column in the magazine which is all about horror comics and not only would we really like to give a couple of these books away, we'd also like to use the release of this book as a springboard so to speak for an April episode on horror movies that were inspired by comic books. So what we'd like to propose to this end is by the time this episode comes out, I will have created a blog post on our website, facultyofhorror.com, and I'd like you guys to enter the contest by commenting and naming your favorite horror movie based on a comic book. And not only could you win a copy of Blood in Four Colors, but we are going to draw from those responses in selecting which films we discuss in the April episode.
1: And you guys are always giving us great suggestions and great comments, and we are always taking those into consideration. But now here is the time to actually put those words into action so you're going to want to go to our webpage again at facultyofhorror.com find the blog post about Blood and Four Colors and comment on that post and those comments for this contest and for the consideration on the April episode will be open until March 15th 2016 and I will throw that blog post up on social media so it'll be on Facebook on Twitter but also just come find it guys come hang out on our website and we'll do fun things together And, um, I don't know, Andrea, are there any graphic novels you really want to talk about? Oh, there are so many. I helped proofread
0: this book and there are so many that I forgot about and just a cursory glance through it. I would love to talk on this podcast about The Crow. I really would. I don't know if you guys consider Hellboy a horror movie, but it is Guillermo del Toro and it
1: is awesome and highly
0: inventive. So maybe we'd bend the rules for that one. I
1: totally bend the rules for that one. And also, I'm super open to this. It's not something I have a lot of familiarity with, but if you guys pick 30 days of night, you will get to hear me say, Josh Hartnett, a lot. Well, duh. That's what everybody wants.
0: So a couple more bookkeeping things before we let you go. At this time in February, as we mentioned, February is Women in Horror Month, and we always get a lot of attention in Women in Horror Month, even though I'm not totally sure I consider what Alex and I do really – falls under the Women in Horror Month umbrella. We are working in horror criticism. We are bringing feminism into horror criticism. And so we've had a couple of opportunities to do some cool stuff as a result. And one of them is we hosted this pseudopod in february and this was so cool for us isn't it wasn't just a guest spot it wasn't just you know putting our station tag which we've been doing with pseudopod for about a year now but they actually asked us to host an entire podcast and we got to talk about a really cool story by lisa tuttle entitled the bug house and i really love doing it and it's online as of february 12th so please do go check that out pseudopod is such an amazing podcast and we were so happy to be part of it.
1: And I hate to say that one of my favorite women in horror is the woman I'm sharing this room with right now. She. Has started her own YouTube channel. It is called The Bat Cave. We have shared it on our social media, so if you haven't seen it yet, you can find the links there. You can also like Andrea's page, Lady Hellbat, on Facebook and get all the updates there. But it's so far an amazing channel. You get to see Andrea talk in real life, which is really cool. It's like you're me, guys. And she's talking about really cool stuff like Rob Zombie filmography. She does a great preview piece on The Witch and a little preview piece on a Faculty of Horror episode. So there's more great stuff to come. It's a lot of really cool content. And if you like Faculty of Horror, you're going to love the Batcave. So definitely check it out. Subscribe to that. And it's just more great free content from us. Thanks, Alex. You're welcome. So that's it from this month. And from Alex and myself,
0: have a happy Women in Horror Month. I hope you're having a great month looking at stuff that maybe you wouldn't be looking at if it wasn't quite so on display this particular month of the year. And until next time, office hours are closed.